This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Fill in the blank in this sentence. I wish my teacher knew... The anonymous answers that one third-grade teacher received to this question were shocking. There were confessions of hunger, lack of school supplies, violence and death, but also dreams of working with animals and getting into honors classes. All this activity was kept secret and confined to the walls of this teacher's classroom until one night her cat knocked over a basket and out tumbled an old crumpled orange note card that read, I wish my teacher knew I don't have pencils at home to do my homework. A simple question that hadn't seemed important enough to share made its way onto this teacher's Twitter account and started a national conversation. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with that third grade teacher about the answers that she received from her students to that question and what it all means. She heard things that were heartbreaking, like, I wish my teacher knew I am smarter than she thinks I am, to the hopeful, I wish my teacher knew that I'm really good at writing. Ultimately, she believes that Every child deserves an excellent education. Every child deserves to feel cared about and heard. And that starts by finding out what our students wish we knew. We'll start talking about the one question that can change everything for kids when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today? And where is her hat? To your own parents. You should take the baby outside every day, even in the rain. To your friends. You have got to get this diaper cream. It is so much better than the one you've been using. When it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated, but really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on? A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Kyle Swartz, who's the author of I Wish My Teacher Knew, How One Question Can Change Everything for Our Kids. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about the question. Uh, in In the introduction, I, I mentioned what it was. And uh, tell us how, how you got this idea. I mean, it just seems like one of these things that seems so painfully simple when you see it. But until it shows up, it's, wow, why didn't, every, why didn't anybody ever ask that before? <laughs> yeah, I think it is true that it is very simple um, and powerful, but yeah, it's very poignant and it allows students to answer honestly. So basically, all I did in my class um, was just write up on the board, I wish my teacher knew, and then I passed out little pieces of paper to my students and they finished the sentence. Um, so uh, it was very simple, but also very illuminating. And I 
there are a million little ways that I do things like this in my classroom where I strive to build relationships and get to know my students. And I'm sure every teacher out there is the same. Um, so I think an answer to thinking that why hasn't anyone thought of this as probably a bunch of teachers have thought about this too and they're doing this in many ways but this is one little thing that kind of cut through the clutter and managed to go viral and I'm just so thrilled that my students voices have reached so far. Do you think that this also applies to I mean parents could be asking their kids the same thing I wish I you know you wish I knew about something or what do you wish your parents knew? Yes, and it, I, that was something that kind of surprised me. After the notes that my students wrote kind of went viral, I got messages from people who thought this idea was so great that there are these blind spots that, you know, people in all sectors and all fields have, and what a great way to ask people about what those blind spots are. So I know that um, CNN did a little piece for Mother's Day that was, I wish my mom knew. But I've also heard from counselors and therapists that are having their clients write, like, I wish my counselor knew. Um, and I heard from a social worker who was having some of the children that she works with write, I wish my, um, I wish my foster parent knew. Hmm. And maybe the most surprising one was I got a message from the vice admiral of the United States Coast Guard, and he actually did this with his um, troops, and he did, I wish my admiral knew. So there is something universal about this that we just all want to be heard, and we all want to have our truths known and express ourselves when we're asked. Well, why, I guess, is the question. Why don't the people on the other end of this know these things? What is it about the relationships that we have that, that inhibits people from telling others what they they feel that they need to know? Well, I think, you know, I think often with children and students that I work with, the reason uh, why maybe there's this gap between what we need others to know and what they actually know is that we don't often ask them. So sometimes there's this assumption with kids that, like, the, us adults know best and we can figure things out um, and we'll, we'll solve this problem, we'll figure it out ourselves. But the truth is that kids have a lot of information for us, and if we give them that invitation and if we also create an environment of trust, they might just feel safe enough to share with us their truths and share with us things that might be vulnerable or might be a little scary to say, but are very powerful when it's out in the air. And you mentioned the word community, and you talk about community a lot in the book. How is that, does that fit in here? Is it just the, the getting to know each other is what builds communities, or, or what's, the, what's your connection there? Um, you know, I have been really lucky to have a lot of great feedback um, from the book, from people who have read it. And one review said, was of a parent, and she is not a teacher, but she said, you know, the book really helped her understand that the community that we create in classrooms is not a happy accident, that there are really intentional things that teachers do every day to create a sense of community because we know when kids feel safe and they feel like they are a part of a supportive community, they learn best. So um, creating a community is just essential to every teacher's work, and this I Wish My te Teacher New exercise really helped me in my classroom because, one, it did help me learn things that I didn't know about my, my students. Um, sometimes they did share with me things that I already knew, but it was interesting to see that they still, like, that was an important thing for me to know. But 
the surprising thing about this exercise and how it kind of has evolved over the years is that I allowed my students to share what they wrote with the class. And this was kind of actually their insistence, you know, after they wrote these notes, they were like, can we tell people? Can we raise our hand? And, you know, I just went with it as a teacher. And that um, experience of having kids like raise their hand and say, you know, I wish my teacher knew that my parents are getting divorced and it makes me sad. Or, you know, I wish my teacher knew I don't think people like me in this class. And it's kind of surprising to us adults to hear that kids were so willing to be vulnerable and open, um, but they really were. And it was in those moments where kids could share their needs and advocate for themselves that empathy was built in my classroom and that kids could connect with each other and support each other and say, you know what, I'm going through that too. Or, you know, I want to make you feel better about this. So, the I wish my teacher knew part of it is that it is letting a teacher know something that maybe they didn't know, but the other just huge powerful aspect of the activity is that it creates um, an environment where we're building empathy and compassion for each other. And I guess the next question is then, what do you do with this information? I mean, do, um, do you, you know, just, is that but, just that we want the kids to be heard or do you say as a teacher or as a Coast Guard Admiral or, or anybody, uh, I'm going to use this as a, a way of integrating these people or their beliefs or whatever a little bit more into the community, or how, how does it play out? Uh, well, sometimes what kids share with me is very actionable. So kind of the note that started it all off was a note that said, I wish my teacher knew I don't have pencils at home to do my homework. So me as a teacher, when I hear that, that's a very actionable item for me. I can give you pencils and school supplies to take home and solve that immediate need. So that's, that's one example. But other times it's just getting to know a kid and having empathy for their situation. So I had one student share that I wish my teacher knew my reading log's not signed because my mom's not around a lot. And just to realize that, like, in her situation, her fantastic, loving mother was also working very hard and was not always home at night to sign off on their homework. And for me as a teacher to know um, that I need to have empathy for that situation and understanding for this kid who's trying to do her best in school but may not have all of the my requirements there, and how can I as a teacher support her and empower her in the classroom? Now, what do you do? I'm, I'm imagining that you've heard some things that would go into the illegal category or the this needs to be reported to the police category. What do you do in those kinds of situations? I do discuss this in the book because um, teachers, and actually in most states, most people who have contact with children as a part of their professional job mandated are mandatory reporter. reporters. Yeah. So um, I talk about that in the book, that if a child chooses to share something with you that falls under the category of what you would a mandatory report, which means something that we would believe would have a child be at harm, then, you know, as a teacher, we have the obligation to keep our kids safe and, um, to, and follow the letter of the law. And that's, you know, a very important thing for teachers to know. And I myself, as a teacher, and Indeed, most teachers I know have made several mandatory reports um, about concerns about child abuse or neglect. Um, none of the reports that I've made have come out of this particular exercise, but I have heard from teachers where 
um, they did this exercise and they found out about um, some pretty severe abuse and some pretty severe harm that children were suffering. And, you know, they, like all teachers, took the necessary steps. And what, uh, you know, a blessing that this activity was um, kind of the catalyst for helping a child stay safe. Um, But I think sometimes a teacher might be scared or... Um, uh, you know, somebody in a position of trust might be scared to ask what's going on for fear of what they might hear. And what I write about in the book is that, you know, the worst thing that could happen is the kid stays silent and the kid doesn't have anything to, anyone to talk to. So if that means that as an adult and as someone who can help that we have to hear things that are difficult, you know, that's not necessarily a burden for us. It's um, you know, just a wonderful thing that we can do to support a child. But it is difficult to hear about challenging things or abuse or neglect that a child is suffering. But, um, you know, it is our responsibility to support those kids, and ultimately it's the right thing to do. Talking with Kyle Swartz, who's the author of I Wish My Teacher Knew, How One Question Can Change Everything for Our Kids. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Kyle. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my 8th grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Kyle Swartz, who's the author of I Wish My Teacher Knew How One Question Can Change Everything for Our Kids. Kyle, I want to have you talk a little bit about some of the, the different sections of the book that you've, you've broken down kind of the action plans into. Um, wondering about how well, one of the chapters is called Students in Poverty, Building on Resources and Breaking Down Barriers. How does the this magic question fit into overcoming barriers in poverty? Um, well, I think one thing I'd like to say first is that um, people might not be aware, but we actually, in America, we have more than half of the students in our American public schools live very close to or below the federal poverty line. So when we let that statistic sink in, it's astounding that we have more than half of kids who are living in poverty, which means that many times their basic needs are not met. And as a teacher whose objective is to, you know, help kids learn and, um, you know, create powerful thinking skills, I have to address um, their basic needs to make sure that they can learn. So sometimes students have shared with me, you know, like, I wish my teacher knew I don't have food at home, or I wish my teacher knew um, that I don't know if I'm going to move soon. I don't know how I can, how long I can, we can stay in our apartment. And those are very uh, important information that I, as a teacher, need to know because then I can support them. So some things that I talked about in the book was providing you know, a food drawer in class, which is something I've done for years, where I just, you know, have granola bars and graham crackers in a drawer secretly in the back of the class, and all the kids know. If you're hungry and you have a need for this, it's there for you. 
Um, so I tried to do that in all the chapters is to create real actionable things that real life human teachers can do in their classrooms to support kids through these challenges such as poverty. Now, I would imagine some teachers will hear this and say, I haven't got a budget for that. Because, I mean, so so much of the budgetary stuff is being pushed down to teachers anyway. You hear stories about you have to buy your own supplies and you have to buy your own paper and chalk and, and other things like that. And, and to say, okay, now you have to, to provide food, too, that's just a little much. I'm not saying that the heart isn't in the right place. I'm just saying that there just, you know, becomes so much responsibility put on the teachers. Absolutely. And I agree. It is more than a little much. It is way too much. Um, I don't know a lot of teachers that don't do it, though. And I think that that is something that maybe people outside of the education fields don't know, is that teachers, our school system is hurting so so badly. We are so inequitably funded that many times basic needs of kids, like having food in their belly, is not met. And teachers are really at the front lines of this, and we're filling in those gaps. So one thing I talk about in in the book is really becoming a teacher advocate, becoming an advocate for your students and helping your students advocate for themselves. Because while I know many, many teachers, myself included, who feed students or who, you know, go to the shoe store and buy kids' shoes, um, we're doing that. But it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a problem. And I think it is so essential for teachers to, you know, become advocates for their students, to let people know that this is happening to children, to our babies in this country, that they don't have basic needs met. And as teachers, we can become a hugely powerful force if we, if we start advocating for our students on high levels. You're teaching third grade, right? I am. So... So it's a little early for them to be mean to each other, but not too early. What happens <laughs> in situations when, if some of this is happening, it is being divulged publicly? That somebody says, I haven't got food, or I'm afraid of, of something, or, I mean, that just seems to be opening themselves up to being made fun of by kids who are not as sensitive as they perhaps might be. How do you handle that kind of, of thing? Uh, well, in my book, in the back of my book, I kind of created an activity guide, a, a, a guide to doing this lesson with your students. And there are a few important things that I kind of note for students to address that concern um, is that I want to make sure that kids know that they have options during this activity. And one of those options is they don't participate. And that is absolutely fine. So I say this is a choice. You guys can finish the sentence or you cannot, and that's fine. And I also share with kids that they can keep their, you know, answers private and just keep it between me and them, or they could share out to the class. Um, you know, and I tell them that they can also keep their answers anonymous, but I'm very honest with them as well that I'm a teacher and I probably know their handwriting. So just being <laughs> honest with the opportunities and limitations of the activity I think is a great um a great step to take. But I also think that it's important to do this type of activity um, in an environment that already has trust built in. So this is not something I do on the first day of school with my students. Um, it's something that I do at various times during the year, but after I know that the students in my classroom have already developed a trust and a relationship with each other and are able to express empathy for each other. And I, I think maybe as an adult we think, 
oh, kids are going to make fun of each other for this. But quite frankly, I have seen children be so much more evolved and empathetic and compassionate to each other than you would think. When you're talking about the trauma-informed classroom, what do you mean by that? Um, so trauma is a big thing that's, that enters into our classroom, and that really means that we have kids in our classroom that have experienced um, adverse childhood experience. So this might be a grief incident. Um, this might be abuse or neglect or something that creates very real fear for kids. And there's kind of this new movement in education or a movement that's gaining more popularity called trauma-informed instruction. And I talk about that in the book because I'm such a believer in it, because um, we have many children inside of our school, inside pretty much every classroom, that have experienced some type of trauma. Um, and when, they, when a child experiences trauma, they're not able to self-regulate, and they're not able to be calm and feel safe and focused and learn. Um, but oftentimes, some uh, symptoms that they display with this are symptoms are things that we punish in school. So if a kid is being inattentive, or if a kid um, overreacts, or um, if a kid is acting maybe hyperactive, those are all things that we as teachers have traditionally like tried to instill discipline in our kids and punish them. But they also might be signs of trauma. And so as a teacher, if you're trauma-informed, you look for that and you say, instead of trying to address the symptom that you're displaying, maybe you're displaying some anger, um, instead of addressing that, let's teach you how to self-regulate and let's teach, teach you how to maintain calm in your body so that you can work in this social environment that's the classroom. And I think that that's kind of a shift for teachers. Um, and it's a shift that I welcome wholeheartedly. Is it a shift that the administration is, is buying into as well? Is that something that needs to be done just in the classroom level? Um, well, I, I, it, it kind of depends on what school you're at, um, but it's something that can definitely start in a classroom and is best when it's embraced by the whole school community. So if I in my third grade classroom have some supports in place for kids to be able to self-regulate, like maybe they have a special spot in the room when they get very agitated and um, they just need a second to like go to a calm place and calm down and um, take some breaths. If I have that available to my students in my third grade classroom, it's best when they can go do it in the music classroom or in the art classroom and they have um, the whole community understanding this. And there are some school districts and even whole states that are taking leadership roles in developing trauma-informed instruction in our teachers and um, giving that professional development. And it's a movement that I champion wholeheartedly. And we only have just a minute left, but talk real quickly about how much support you need from other teachers in the school or whether this is something that a teacher can do individually. Um, well, I think that the I wish my teacher knew activity is something that you can definitely do individually. And really everything in my book, most of the teacher tools that I have at the end of each chapter, I really created with the teacher in mind that would be actionable steps that they could do without, um, without, you know, some extra special crazy support from the administration. It's something that they can do in their classroom immediately to support kids. But um, I'm very lucky that I work at a school where 
all of the staff and all the adults really are there to support kids. And um, I think that's what's best is when the whole school community is on the same page and they're all there to do what's right for kids. Kyle Swartz is the author of I Wish My Teacher Knew, How One Question Can Change Everything for Our Kids. Is there a website people can learn a little bit more about? Yes. Um, so the website is IWishMyTeacherKnewBook.com. And I would be so thrilled if your listeners and you would connect with me on Twitter, either by using the hashtag I, wish, um, hashtag I wish my teacher knew or contacting me directly. And my um, Twitter handle is Kyle M. Swartz. Okay. Sounds good. Kyle, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? How's that cook? How do you change the ringtone? How much does this cost? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life, except... Any questions? Um, no. At the doctor's office, ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? Questions lead to better health care. Go to ahrq.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt. Let me jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad. Dear Mr. Dad, my girlfriend and I talked many times about children and mutually decided not to have any. However, without telling me, she changed her mind and got pregnant. I have absolutely no interest in being a father or raising children, but she's threatening to come after me for child support. Is there anything I can do to stop her? Well, the short answer to your question is no, there's nothing you can do to stop her. Society's reaction to any man who gets a woman pregnant, even if he was lied to about her intentions, is basically, tough luck, buddy. If you didn't want kids, you should have used a condom or had a vasectomy. The legal system's reaction is pretty much the same. If you and your girlfriend break up, and I can't imagine how you could possibly stay together after such a major breach of trust, and she chooses to keep the baby, you're on the hook for 18 years of child support for a child you never wanted. Plus, as an added bonus, you'll be forced to have an ongoing relationship with a woman you'd probably just as soon never see again. Bottom line, she can do whatever she wants, and you have absolutely no say in it at all. Let's be clear. I am in no way suggesting that you should have the right to force your girlfriend to have an abortion. That would be barbaric. Nor am I suggesting that you should have the right to force her to have the child if the situation were reversed and you wanted the baby, but she didn't. I'm just pointing out that in all the politically charged debates between the pro-choice and pro-life camps, we've forgotten, or worse, maybe we never even realized, that men, too, are deeply affected by the reproductive choices women make. The phrase, a woman's right to choose, usually means her right to have an abortion. But having the rights not to become a parent includes the right to become one if she chooses. Neither of these seemingly fundamental rights, however, apparently applies to men. The same laws that protect your girlfriend's parental choices also allow her to either force you to become a father against your will or deprive you of your right to become one if you so choose. So what can you do? Well, one possible answer comes from Sweden. A group called the Liberal Youth of Sweden recently proposed legislation that would give men the right to what you might call a legal abortion. Under the proposed law, a man would have until the 18th week of the pregnancy to give up any right to visit his child. 
and he would be legally exempt from paying any child support. In situations like yours, this approach seems quite fair to me, but it's meeting with a lot of resistance in that otherwise very progressive country. Because pregnancy, childbirth, and abortion physically affect women more than men, ultimately, women should have 51% of the votes. But you should have the opportunity to participate in the decision-making process, to express how having or not having a child will affect you, and to try to convince your girlfriend that you're right while also giving her a chance to convince you that she's right. I doubt that either of you will change the other's mind, but perhaps you can convince her to try the Swedish approach. If she's open to the idea, you'll need to see a good lawyer to determine whether such an agreement would be legally binding in your state. You can get a lot more Ask Mr. Dad columns at AskMrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you, either Ask Mr. Dad or Parents at Play. Hey, but don't go quite yet, because as you know, there's more positive parenting coming right ahead. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you hear? Cool. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like. Consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh, he's late every morning. You'd think you would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel. Has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. In this part of today's show, we are going to be taking a sweeping look at the history of American childhood and parenting from the nation's founding until the present day. We're going to be talking with renowned historian Paula Fass about how, since the beginning of the American Republic, independence, self-definition, and individual success have informed Americans' attitudes towards children. But as parents today hover over every detail of our kids' lives, are the qualities that once made American childhood special still desired and even possible? Placing the experiences of children and parents against the backdrop of social, political, and cultural shifts we're going to be challenged a little bit here in today's discussion to reconnect with the beliefs that set the American understanding of childhood apart from the rest of the world. For example, we're going to take a look at how freer relationships between American children and parents have transformed our national culture and altered generational relationships among immigrants, helped create a new science of child development, and even promoted a revolution in modern schooling. 
And we've ended up, oddly, in a place where conditions and policies in this country have made adolescence pretty much irrelevant. We'll start delving into the end of American childhood when Positive Parenting continues right after this. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat. And apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable. But how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brought. My guest for this part of today's show is Paula Foss, who's the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Paula, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk, I guess, give us a, a little bit of context here. I mean, we're talking about the American childhood, which certainly could, I guess, would have to start when America started. Or did that predate that? No, actually, since I make a big point of the importance of the revolution and the disassembling of patriarchy that was implied both by the event and with the the views that Americans had about uh, what the consequences were for family, I would say that it doesn't predate it. I mean, there are certain conditions in America that predate it. We brought some of the stuff with, some of the baggage, I guess, along on, on the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria and... Oh, I don't know about that. Not that far. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't go back <laughs> that, that far. far. Okay. No, I actually think that m- the reason that uh, parenting in the United States was unusual in the Western world, and I've done quite a bit of work looking in, at the pa- at childhood in the West generally, is because there were particular conditions in the United States that um, made that made hierarchy within family relations less important. Deference for pa- of parent of children towards parents less expected, and put a, a greater emphasis on the responsibility of children and the maturation of children, and the expectation that children were capable of doing things on their own. Uh, part of it was a kind of forward-looking quality that I think the revolution introduced, but also the nature of the American landscape, uh, the the availability of land. Uh, the possibility of actually setting off on your own and not being held back by by earlier uh, experiences and by tradition. And did that start from the moment we landed here, or no, did, it, did it take a did while not. to no, to took, pick up some steam? It definitely did not. I mean, uh, the uh, what uh, I'm not a colonial historian, but I've read a lot in colonial history, and and, and the colonial experience was distinctly different with a lot of emphasis on uh, father's roles, on father's control, and on father's power over the wives and the children. And and that is precisely what begins to be questioned uh, at the time of the revolution and subsequent to the revolution, especially as Americans fan out over the continent, which doesn't take place really until after the revolution as the as the boundaries uh, are, are eliminated uh, with the Western territories. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're obviously way, way, way more immersed in the history of these things. But I mean, just a little bit of reading that I've done about this, 
talking about the shift from father dominance in the family to mother dominance in the family, uh, take, having to do with a variety of, of, of issues that are going on. And those, you're saying, are more peculiar to the American experience than to the European where we came from. Definitely more specific to the American. Now, I, I should also say that over, over the course of the 20th century, especially post-World War II, there's been much more um, likeness between the United States mm -hmm. and Western Europe than there had been before. But, but the American experience for about 150 years was very different, uh, different uh, in terms of internal family relations, different in terms of the extensive amount of schooling that was available to, uh, to American kids, and which also introduced... Um, uh, introduced various kinds of changes within family dynamics. And the best example of that comes in the experience of immigrants and immigrant families okay. who are, in fact, bringing that older set of assumptions to the American scene. And again and again, uh, starting in the late 19th century and going through the early 21st century, where we are now, the, the, the particulars of that kind of patriarchal set of expectations that were brought initially by European immigrants, Latin American immigrants, Asian immigrants, are confronted, are confronted by uh, the realities in the United States where they cannot maintain that kind, uh, th those assumptions. Um, things okay. have begun to change today. I should say yeah. uh, that one of the things I haven't mentioned is that I think that these differences have been attenuated over the last 35 years for various reasons. Among them, the growing influence of fathers with in, in, in households, um, but positive kinds of fathering, not the kind of disciplinarian, uh, authoritarian right. fathering that we're, that we're thinking of. And because of the introduction of new, uh, lots of new immigrants, mm -hmm. too. Uh, who find this American form of lack of discipline very right. difficult. All right, so let's go back some, to some point. I pick a point like Civil War, for example. Okay, and good. and because you, you talk about Ulysses Grant and being nine years old or ten years old or something and basically running the farm, which is, I mean, you know, this is Inconceivable to uh, imagine today. this mm -hmm. being read by a parent who says, my ten-year-old, you know, can't <laughs> take a bus by himself across town and, you know, it's just it's completely inconceivable. Yeah. So you've got the grants here. What's happening in England or in Spain at that point? I mean, how how is that family different? Do you have a ten year old who's who's running the the olive vineyard in, uh, in you know Spain. in Greece or something? Uh, you know what, no. what's the short answer is no. Now, that doesn't mean that in England or in France or in Spain or in Italy these children aren't working at the age of ten, which they are. But the consequences are very different. They're not given the kind of latitude that Ulysses Grant is given to run things. They're not given the confidence and trust that Ulysses Grant is given by his father, that he can do things on his own. And they're not allowed to do the kind of roaming that Ulysses Grant can do. One of the things that, that Grant is allowed to do by the time he's an early adolescent is to sell horses on his own account and to take the profits and the losses. In other words, the parents say to him, you take the risk. You learn about the riskiness. If you lose, you lose. We're not going to stand you for it. But if you win, it's yours. That is very different. So while the work may seem similar, the right. amount of work around the farm, 
the consequences and the context are so different. The kind of understanding that Grant's father has, that he gives his son the authority to make decisions on his own, that's very different. All right. So how, I mean, we're going to talk about this in much more detail in the time that you're here, but I mean, how do you get from that to, to well, to, <laughs> to the argument that people make, that, that, and it's a biologically based argument, apparently, that you know, adolescence lasts until 25, when in, in his day, 150 years ago, there was no adolescence. So no. you just basically went from being a, a tween, to, if that sort of the term existed, never existed, yeah. but to being a tween to being an adult. Well, it wasn't quite that simple. I mean, there was a transition that took place, even for Grant. But the maturation process was much faster, and certainly no one would have argued at that point that at the age of 25, you were not an adult yet, that in a sense, you, you were still emerging. There was still an emergent adulthood. The bi- I want to bracket the biological issues for a moment, because we only probe biology when we already come with certain assumptions. And one of the assumptions is that there is such a thing as adolescence. And as you said just now, in the 19th century, people didn't assume there was such a thing as adolescence. There was a transition that took place, a brief transition. Obviously, puberty existed. And there were also, in the 19th century, religious transformations that might take place so that you could have a religious conversion experience, say, at 12 or 13, which would mark you as responsible and as an adult in the eyes of God. Well, in my family, but they they weren't here yet, but uh, in Poland and Russia, we're having bar mitzvahs still. Yes, exactly. So there is some kind of a thing that's, that's going on. But today, a bar mitzvah certainly does not mark the moment at which someone becomes an adult it's, at all. It's the moment where you open up a tracking account. <laughs> because of all the gifts that are that, that right, you expect. Right. 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 So no, so you the, the the larger question you're asking, Armin, is very difficult for a historian to answer briefly <laughs> because so many things take place and happen. But let me try to be as succinct as, as possible. Okay. Especially since you asked about the Civil War. One of the things that comes out of the Civil War is a growing anxiety about children who are inadequately cared for. There's a lot of orphans that come out of the war. And freedmen and the children of freedmen are also released often into a kind of very precarious life. There's a new emphasis on orphans of all kinds. So the public becomes more conscious of the kinds of things that children are owed and the supervision that's required of children than they had been before the Civil War. That's number one. This, uh, so there's a, there's a new public in- set of interventions, including various kinds of philanthropic organizations that begin to oversee children. Now, Paul, let me, let me stop you there for just a second. We'll continue. We've got to take a quick break. Sure. Talking with Paula Foss, who's the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Again, we're taking a quick break. We'll pick up right there when we come back. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. My name's Tyler, and in nine years, I'll be an alcoholic. I'll start drinking in middle school, just at parties. But my parents won't start talking to me about it till high school. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. Thing is, my parents won't even see it coming. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Dear Mom and Dad, 
Well, the army has finally seen fit to give me some time off, so I'm writing to tell you that I'm doing fine over here. And mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Paula Foss, who's the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. And just before the break, you were talking about the Civil War and that. So please continue. Uh, Just to to repeat that briefly, uh, the Civil War makes Americans very conscious of unsupervised children and the costs of the absence of parents. So they become more aware and more interventionist in general in children's lives. Among the things that also emerges at the same time because of industrialization is a new awareness of and condemnation of child labor, especially in factories. So while the farm experience of Ulysses Grant is one thing, and it continues, the kind of factory labor is viewed in very different terms as exploitative. And the other thing that begins to happen by the late 19th century uh, is a, a, a new emphasis on, on extended schooling and keeping children in school for longer periods of time. Those now, do you mean the school as a location or their schooling as a, an, a, just a general idea? Schooling because a, a, a lot of it was happening at, in, in the home, right? Some of it was, but um, the school as a location. I mean, so many things change in the late 19th century. There's really a massive urbanization, a huge new immigration. The whole texture of the society changes. And so schools as locations in urban areas, and even to some degree in farming areas, now become much more important. And in response to immigration, there's a push to keep students in school longer Uh, whereas they had been for four years previously going on and off in very irregular ways. There's now new attendance requirements, and gradually by the early 20th century, expansions in what's considered the end point of schooling. So that increases... Well, first of all, it begins to introduce adolescence. By the early 20th century, once you have kids in school in that period of transition, then you, have a, you, you, you begin to open up a new area of childhood, which is not quite like an, an eight-year-old, mm-hmm. but also not quite like an adult yet. And since they're in school, they're still preparing that right. preparatory idea. In the 20th century, those things all get massively extended. Uh, schooling especially, and if we want to really skip to the present time, the extension of schooling as necessary preparation transforms the whole concept of maturity. Uh, and that, that, I think, is one of the keys that we're looking and, at. And when does the, the concept or the science of child development start? I mean, it's not just with Piaget. It, somebody had been thinking about this before, but the idea that, that kids are not just little grown-ups— 
Uh, I have a whole chapter on that, I have to say, on I the know. science of childhood. And the, the very earliest uh, introductions of those kinds of concerns is late 19th, early 20th century. They expand massively in the 1920s and 30s. The 20s and 30s uh, sees an explosion in child-rearing advice. And the really important person in the American context is, is Gazelle who at Yale begins to actually investigate the different periods of childhood development by looking at young children. And normal mothers, which uh, normal, bringing normal children now for, the, for understanding what normal childhood process is like at various stages of life. And Gazelle changed, you know, first he looks at infancy and very early childhood, and then he begins to expand that. And that sense of development is a profoundly important concept in the 20th century, and it then leads to these ideas of staged, progressive maturation. Mm -hmm. That then intersects with schooling, which is sure. also about staged, progressive development. Right. So do you think that, that we're better off now with all of the additional knowledge and information and study that we have, or are we somehow doing kids, and particularly you talk about how adolescence has disappeared, pretty much, are we doing kids in that age group a disservice by not giving them the responsibility and the consequences as uh, Mr. Grant and Mr. and Mrs. Grant gave their kids for selling horses? Um, you know, is it, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating discussion and a fascinating concept, but is there something we are we should do differently or did wrong or, you know? I think the answer is yes and no. Obviously, we protect our children better today. Our children, uh, we, we look for various laws to protect their safety. We look, we're concerned about their well-being in great detail. But we've also brought to the table a set of anxieties that I think does not do them a service. Uh, I include myself as a mother in that. Uh, anxieties about their, their well-being and anxieties about their success. We no longer trust that they can find their own pathway to success. So we have to lead them along this narrow path that we've followed and assume that, therefore, it will have to serve them as well. And the delay in maturity, I think, is potentially a problem. Now, that, you know, you have to ask young people whether they think it's a problem. In a sense, we impose our perspective. And I, as a historian, having looked at this, see all kinds of good things having resulted. Um, resourcefulness. Children were expected to be resourceful. You're talking about in the past, historically. Right. Okay, yeah. And I look around, and I do see kind of delayed maturity. You know, there's a, a movie I saw the other day called Failure to Launch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so we have become... Uh, we have become more and more, uh, how shall I put it? Um, coddling. Coddling, maybe. yes. Well, I, helicoptering, <laughs> coddling. I, yeah. I use the word managed, obviously, in the, in, in the, the, um, um, the subtitle of the book. Um, I think that kind of management, which, by the way, and here I'm speaking to a psychologist, in many ways emerged from psychological insights has its negative consequences, as oh, all yeah. kinds of things do. No, I, I, I have, I'm way on board with you. I mean, it's, uh, I often will tell people, you know, when I was eight years old growing up in Oakland, my parents had me on buses going all over the place. And I wasn't trading horses, but I had a paper route, and, and so that, that involved 
buying the newspapers and reselling them and if I didn't do that right, you know, and, and trying to be sweet around Christmas time so people would give tips. I mean, you, you learn, you know, had to learn a few kinds of things that, that, that kids didn't. But if I were to put my 8-year-old, or my she's 13 now, but uh, put that child on a bus at, at age 8, I would probably have uh, had her delivered back home by a police officer. Exactly. I was going to say you would probably be arrested, as some people are arrested these right, days. Right, which is horrifying. It is I, I think. I mean, you know, yes, of course we don't want our children to be kidnapped and we don't want our children to be in danger, which is why playgrounds are all rubber these days and you can't but, fall and down and hurt yourself. Them. Yeah. <clears throat> well, kids have to be taught how to play. Uh, I mean, it, anyway, but so I, we, we agree with this, but it's it's uh, it's an interesting thing to, to see historically where we came from. And, and in a way, you want to say how far we've come, but it's like how how far we didn't come. Or how far backwards we went, or I mean, it's it seems like the the progression from in time, from the eighteen hundreds to the two thousands has not been a forward march all the way. Well, any his, any good historian would tell you that there is no such thing historically as necessarily a forward march. Just because we move over time, right, doesn't mean we get better. Uh, but one would hope, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book that we could reconnect, parents today would be able to reconnect with some of this tradition that has made America into a quite successful society and the kind of forward-looking qualities that have allowed us to endow our children with that kind of trust. I have to say, one of the reasons that we American parents were able to do that is that we had a lot of faith in the future. And I think we're losing that. I think over the last couple of generations, there has been a decline in faith in the future. And if you lose that faith in the future, you are fearful that your children's lives will not be better. And if they won't be better, you want to at least make sure that they have as much as you do, which is where I think parents are today. Certainly middle-class parents, but no, not only middle-class parents. I think a lot of parents yeah. are coddling because they're fearful for their children's future. Well, that's what people are saying now, is that this is really the first generation of kids who are generally out there now who don't have an automatic leg up on their parents financially or in, in any other way. And so you're, yeah, you're right. So we, we if, if you can't make it better, we can at least make it more pleasant while you're here. I should, though, say that we've been here before. This kind of transformation economically, the kind of globalization that we worry about, the massive immigration, the changes in, in some of the details of people's lives, we experienced all that in the late 19th century, and we still managed to allow our children to move forward. In other words, we may be at a moment right before we re, you know, we, we have a new dawn where we believe things will get better. At least I hope that's the case. Paula Foss, the author of The End of American Childhood, A History of Parenting from Life on the Frontier to the Managed Child. Just fascinating stuff. Paula, thanks for coming by. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.